This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What exactly is a conservative? That's a term like liberal that's thrown around a lot. Some people wear it as a badge of honor. Other people view it as a political boogeyman. Some people, it's interchangeable with the word Republican. And for others, it's an ideology that no longer has a political party. It's been used to label people, ideas, parties, TV networks. But it's 2019, and what is a conservative? Well, for that answer, I turn to David French, one of the premier conservative thinkers of our age. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we're talking with David French, who is perhaps best known as a writer for the National Review, but has actually just launched a new publication called The Dispatch, a home for conservative, fact-driven journalism. We spoke at David's home in Franklin, Tennessee, surrounded by life-size posters of NBA icons like Magic Johnson. Now, David is one of those writers who gets attacked from both sides. He's obviously at odds with a lot of people on the left, but he's also viciously attacked by the right as well because he's committed more to a conservative ideology than he is to defending a political party or the president. So today we discuss the Never Trump movement, we discuss Trump's actions in Syria, we talk about the state of conservative media, and we also talk about how the South has changed in his lifetime. So folks, let's broaden our minds. This is The Reckon Interview. David French, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So we are speaking on what is uh, your last day working yes. for the National Review. Yes, this is probably my last media event as a senior writer at National Review. And your new title will be? Senior editor at The Dispatch. So tell us what The Dispatch is. So The Dispatch is a new, I don't know, it's not exactly right to call it media company, but it is a media venture that is uh, launched by Jonah Goldberg, my friend and former National Review colleague and by Stephen Hayes, former editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, with Toby Stock, who's uh, formerly at the American Enterprise Institute. So it's a great uh, trio. Um, They're just incredibly talented people. I'm not comparing myself to Kevin Durant in any way with this analogy. (laughs) I'm comparing myself maybe more to Sean Livingston. Okay. But I felt like I was sort of joining the uh, Golden State Warriors with Steph, Clay, and Draymond, and I'll let them work out which one is Steph, Clay, and Draymond, but it was a a great opportunity. So the Weekly Standard obviously had an unfortunate end. Yes. And uh, it seems like in its wake there has been the rise of the dispatch but also the bulwark. Mm-hmm. Those two are at least the two two of the ones that I know about that have kind of moved into to fit this space of conservative media. Mm-hmm. In 2016, the National Review notably took a, a never-Trump stance. Well, it took a ne- – it took a – against Trump, we had an against Trump issue in the – primaries, and then the magazine did not endorse either one in the general. Okay. So it seems like, just from my perspective, that there's Mm -hmm. conservative media that uh, carries on the tradition of the Weekly Standard and the National Review and Buckley, and then there's kind of this other conservative space or or alt-right space, right-leaning space. Right-wing. Might Mm -hmm. not necessarily uh, meet traditional definitions of conservative, that has certainly gained in, in stature over the last decade. Uh, right. Where does the dispatch fit into that? I'm going to say this fully cognizant that everyone who knows anything about my writing knows I'm I'm an opinion journalist. Sure. Yeah. So, but I would say that one of the things that is plaguing conservative media writ large is that it is awash in opinion and not as heavy on reporting and analysis. So if you were going to look at the whole conservative media landscape, for example, um, what you often see, now there are reporters who do good work and and break stories at, you know, on the news side of Fox News. And, and, but if you're going to look at conservative media writ large, it's an extremely commentary heavy medium. 
And so you'll take the reporting of Washington Post and New York Times and react to it and comment on it. And so what we want to do is, in addition, we're going to have commentary. I mean, gosh, Jonah and I are both our opinion writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to also have an emphasis on deep dive reporting, really rigorous analysis. And I wouldn't, I don't think it's exactly right in any way to say that we're going to be an anti-Trump publication because we hope to outlast the Trump administration by a long, far, uh, you know, by by some distance. And so I uh, hope to be ultimately defined not so much by our position on Trump, which my position on Trump is quite clear, Jonah's has been quite clear, but by the reporting and analysis and commentary that we do. You mentioned sort of the Fox News. Uh, mm-hmm. Shepard Smith obviously just publicly departed. What would you say is the state of Fox News right now? I mean, is it almost exclusively Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson's? <laughs> well, you know, it's always uh, been, network? there's always been a big difference between its news and its opinion side. So when most people think of Fox because of the primetime lineup that is so been so dominant in the ratings for so long, they think of the primetime opinion lineup. You know, it used to be O'Reilly and Hannity, and now it's Tucker and Laura Ingram and Hannity. And But Fox also has a hard news side. Mm-hmm. Brett Baer does excellent work. There are others at Fox who do excellent work on just hard news reporting. And, and so I think of Fox as sort of almost like a two-headed creature. One of them is, one of the heads is monstrous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, Jekyll and Hyde. There you go. Sure. And Fox is the dominant conservative media property. And then kind of behind Fox, you have the constellation of talk radio folks who reach their own set of millions. Would um, you count the podcasters like Ben Shapiro among them? I think or? that's a different beast. Okay. Um, I think if Ben is in a different space than a lot of those guys, he's in a different, speaking to a different demographic. So you have Fox and Talk Radio that is sort of speaking to the same demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, did I see recently the median Fox viewer is, is 65? Um, I'm not sure of the median Talk Radio listener, but it's a older audience. Sure. Uh, let me put it this way. I don't know many people my age and younger, I'm 50, who listen to Talk Radio. Right. Ben is hitting a t- completely different demographic. Ben's demographic, from best as I know, is speaking to younger conservatives probably more than any other figure. Mm-hmm. And Daily Wire speaks to younger conservatives probably more than any other outlet. It's just my, based on, you know, what no, I've seen. I mean, now. based off of Apple podcast rankings, yeah. unless you count Joe Rogan in that space, then which he has a different mission. But he, he He's a different, yeah. He's a similar he's a He's sort of a a guy who wants to hear from a lot of different viewpoints and very much an advocate of free expression. And I don't think he would call himself in any way, shape, or form a conservative in the same in, in the mold of Shapiro or any other sort of mainstream traditional conservative ideology. So the, the position that you're in, uh, who, you know, kind of carrying the torch of conservative ideology mm-hmm. as opposed to partisan media and, and right. media that has kind of in some ways taken an adversarial stance against Trump during the primaries, but has now right. kind of become an advocate for for a lot of Trump's policies. You're you're kind of, you know, it's like the uh the battle of the bastards in Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, and you're, now you're, you're surrounded my analogy by, here, by, yeah. Okay. By um by all sides. You know, you get you get hit by the left. Yeah. And you get hit by the right. The Trump right. The Trump right. Mm-hmm. And uh your your mentions on Twitter must just be terrible constantly. Although you've been a meme, so <laughs> yeah. there's gonna be some fun to that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I, you raise a really good term, partisan. We're not going to be partisan at the dispatch. We're, we're unapologetically and openly conservative. But one of the things that, that uh, and this is something that Jonah's talked about a great deal, is it has been eye-opening, in, especially in the age of Trump, to see the extent to which large chunks of conservative media are just purely partisan, when they get when you get right down to it, the purpose isn't advancing a particular set of ideas. The purpose isn't even the pursuit of truth. The purpose is the advancement of you know a party, but and often a person. Right, uh, Donald Trump. I mean, let's you know this is plain and obvious from the tilt of and and the tilt of conservative commentary, obviously, and in right wing commentary, but it's also obvious from the startling way in which people will vigorously defend actions from the administration that they would absolutely unequivocally condemn coming from a Democrat. Right. I mean, they would be calling for impeachment coming from a Democrat. And and that, to me, is sort of the hallmark of a part of partisan media. And if, you would expect that from a politician. Of course. But not from 
You would you would even expect it to an extent from politicians, PACs, some kinds of activist groups or grassroots groups, which they hitch their particular cause to the outcome of a party, so they become invested in the party as the only way to implement the cause. So you kind of begin to expect that. You don't expect it, and I have to be honest, I, 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 I think of myself as a cynical person, but I realized that I was even, I was naive. Uh, sure. My cyni- the depths of my cynicism had not yet been fully plunged. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I thought that a lot of the people, especially some of the talk radio folks who were, you know, what you would call sort of rhino hunters in the past, like rhino stands for Republican in name only. Right. And they were just roaming the fields of the con- GOP looking for the politician who would stray from the sort of three legs of the Republican stool party line and just putting them down as fast as they possibly could. And the so here comes Donald Trump, who just basically takes all, you know, on at various points in the campaign, he took almost every conceivable position about everything. Right. And they would be, I, I, I remember how they would roast Mitt Romney for positions that he had seven, eight, nine, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And they're giving Trump a pass for positions he held 15 minutes ago, and then that he would express again 15 minutes later and then contradict 30 minutes after that. Right. And so you begin to realize, okay, yeah, this is what actual partisan media looks like. And and look, this isn't unprecedented. We've had, you know, in fact, if you look at the big sweep of American history, partisan media has been sort of more the norm than the exception. Right. I mean, the, Thomas Jefferson owned newspapers to right. advocate his ideas. So. Right, right. Well, I mean, partisan media was a big part of the run-up to the Civil War. Right. So, to say it's the norm and not the exception is not to excuse it. Right. But it's just to acknowledge it's the reality that this is something that we've seen before. Well, in some ways, and, and I don't, maybe this is not new either, but it, it seems that there are times where it's tough to tell where Sean Hannity's ideology ends and Trump's begins. That well, there's sort of the it's the, that's because they've done with, kind of a mind meld, <laughs> right? Yeah, right, I right. mean, you know, and Trump calls Hannity, and mm-hmm. you'll have some of these Fox figures who will accompany the president, and that's totally normal for media figures to accompany a president, but you often don't know are they accompanying as a media figure covering the president, or are they accompanying as an advisor? participating in the decision-making process with the president. And that's that's how closely intertwined Trump is with favorable media. He feeds off that favorable media, obviously. He basks in that favorable media, and that's how you often get access to Trump. And so the way a lot of the, ration, the rationalizing mind works is people say, well, by my flattery or by my coverage, I gain influence. And when I gain influence, I can use it for the good, sort of the way they you know, persuade themselves. So then let's contrast that with ideological media. So you, the, the Dispatch and, and your writings, the National Review, are conservative, yes. not, not partisan. So just as a definition of terms, what is conservative to you? What does that well, mean? Well, I think, you know, that's a great, that's a great question because, <laughs> uh, honestly, nobody actually knows what the conservative movement is anymore. So depending on the wonkiness of the audience, I describe myself differently. Well, let's go full wonky. Go full wonk. (laughs) So full wonk is I'm a pro-life classical liberal. Okay. Okay. So pro-life is self-explanatory. Classical liberal uh, requires some explanation, but it's essentially another way of putting it would be constitutional conservative, seeking to defend the principles of the founding, believing that the principles articulated in the founding documents, including the Bill of Rights, the Civil War Amendments principally, that they represent the best form of governance for the United States and that these principles are worth defending and reinforcing. And that would be, you know, my definition of what it means to be a classical liberal. And so, therefore, I'm a civil libertarian. Uh, I'm a strong advocate of the Bill of Rights for all people. You know, I, I think one of the most pernicious sorts of philosophies that you'll ever hear is sort of this free speech for me, but not for thee kind of mindset that takes over much of the internet. I'm happy to zealously defend the most controversial statements of people from my side and happy to silence the those or seek the silencing of those from the other side. Well, and just to quickly build off of that, because I, I noticed a phenomenon uh, last month, or it might have been a little earlier than that, but um, there was an instance where a 
dean of students at the University of Alabama, uh, right. was forced to resign over comments that he had made on Twitter, presumably over comments that he had made on Twitter. It seemed to follow mm-hmm. that, a, a Breitbart yeah. story. And I didn't see, I guess, the sort of response from from the media that I think would have happened if he had been forced to resign oh, of course. for commenting, uh, you know, uh, taking a pro-life stance, right. for example. Right. And so I guess you, you articulated it well, the... Uh, it's for me and not for thee. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, stuff like that, like how much of it is all performative for one side or the other? Oh, a, a large, large chunks of online outrage are performative. Yeah. And as I recall, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe his tweets were from before he took the job. They were, yeah. And so he was not fired for any on-the-job performance problems at all. He was fired for bad old tweets, which is sort of like, you know, conservatives have been on that riding that hobby horse for a long time. Stop tweet policing. Stop firing people for bad old tweets. Stop firing people for columns that people find subjectively offensive. Stop. And bad bad old tweets is a subjective yeah. stance. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But somebody perceives them as bad. Right. And so stop firing people. Stop being snowflakes. And then all of a sudden, you know, that gets turned around on a radical adjunct professor here, a dean here. And you really see this sort of phenomenon in conservative media where it's, find the crazy professor and get a Fox News segment out of it. Right. And so then the, you know, alumni come down on the school. And now if it's a professor, usually they're going to have academic freedom protections. If it's an administrator, it's a different ball of wax. There's a, there isn't as much classic academic freedom protection for an administrator as a professor. So yeah, it's it's toxic. It's bad. I used to be president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and we prided ourselves on, we had an incredibly diverse staff, black, white, gay, straight, conservative, progressive, Christian, atheist, Muslim, Jewish. I mean, it was the diversity that universities dream about and, <laughs> and rarely deliver yeah. was at fire. And we had all these different perspectives, but no matter whose free speech rights were being infringed or what their perspective was, if it was constitutionally prote- protected speech, we were equally zealous in their defense. And it sort of underlies a core aspect of my own personal political and legal philosophy, which is fight for the rights of others you would like to exercise yourself. A due process violation committed in a case involving a young African-American man living in Birmingham is just as egregious as a due process violation in a university impacting a upper middle class white evangelical, it's due process. You protect due process. Same with free speech, same with free exercise of religion. And it's the equal access to these liberties, which has been one of the aspirational goals of the United States since, and and not evenly applied in all quarters. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, but it's been an aspirational goal of the United States. It's been an aspirational principle of the United States since the founding. And so that would be primarily what would put you at odds with with the current administration. Would well, that's that he, one thing. That's one thing that he clearly. That's one thing. <laughs> and then I'm a you know I I'm not going to say I'm a libertarian, but I am I am deeply skeptical of the ability of technocrats to manage successfully manage large and complex institutions like an American economy, sure. <laughs> for example. Yeah. And so I am very suspicious of big, sweeping government plans to rescue industry, to regulate and run all of American health care. You know, so I'm skeptical of that. That's A libertarian, as a matter of principle, would say, you know, these, in, these institutions, these government institutions, by their very existence, impair liberty in particular ways. And I'm sympathetic with that. I also sort of overlay a pragmatism. So I'm, I'm fiscally conservative. I'm a civil libertarian. And then on foreign policy, I, I, I'm not going to say I'm an quote-unquote interventionist because I've supported some interventions and I've not supported others. But I am definitely a believer in America's global alliances without question. And I think that we as Americans, we have this tendency as people that we take success for granted because that's just the way things should be. And then we take the things that are that are not working well and focus exclusively on those because that's that is the outrage. I take the position that 
we should have a, a lot of gratitude for the things that are successful and not take them for granted and realize that they're in our effort to combat things that we don't like. We don't want to undermine the things that we do. So for example, with NATO, I do not like that Germany does spend substantially below 2% of its GDP on its defense. I don't like that. That's bad. Germany should up its defense. And to those who say, well, you don't want Germany to be strong, I remind them that the West German army was one of the cornerstones of NATO defense throughout the Cold War. I mean, it was much stronger at another time, relatively recent time in our history. And it was, again, a cornerstone of NATO. So, But you don't then say Germany is not pulling its weight, Italy is not pulling its weight, or all these countries are not pulling its weight, so I'm going to question NATO. Right. You know, that way, way too much, way too much. But if I don't personally question NATO, but to play this out, mm -hmm. is an alliance that was born out of the Cold War, specifically to counter the Warsaw Pact, is that alliance outdated? Maybe 10, 12 years ago, there, before Russia had sort of reemerged in the way that it has, I think there was some interesting conversations to be had along those lines. I mean, there were questions at one point, should Russia join NATO? And right. then, and which can't, <laughs> in which case, <laughs> it's just the, it's starting to look just more like the UN, you know? Right. But um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things, if you have in between, you know, 1914 and 1945, we fought two of the most cataclysmic wars in all of human history. And from since from 1945 until now, we have not had a true great power conflict. There have been skirmishes, you know, uh, Mao, uh, uh, the um, Communist China, the PRC skirmished with the Soviets. We fought Mao's China in a war that was intense but confined to the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. We've had these things, but anything like that massive force-on-force, force, millions and millions of casualties sort of fight that we had twice in the 20th century, we haven't had that. And so one of the reasons why we haven't had that, quite frankly, is the Western alliance and then our alliance with powers in, in Asia. And when you've had that kind of peace right. and you've had that kind of peace because of these alliances, you have to think long and hard and you have to be really sure before you disrupt that. You don't just pull out of Syria on a whim. Oh, that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> but you definitely don't do that. You definitely don't do that. So th I imagine that this is a, a personal issue for you. I mean, you were a JAG officer and you enlisted after 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think when you see the events of the last two weeks involving Syria and <sighs> Turkey and Russia and Iran? So... Uh, and Turkey is a NATO ally. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's <laughs> Which complicates a, It's an increasingly strained alliance, but um, and he's in, and Erdogan is increasingly in Putin's orbit. But let me begin with this. I think that any discussion of Syria has to acknowledge complexity. There was nothing like a permanent settlement of the Syrian question in play when Trump pulled out. There were hard decisions that were going to have to be made. And I don't think that anyone's believe that we want American troops in northern Syria forever. But at the same time, American troops were indispensable. Their presence was indispensable to not just protecting our allies, but having any leverage at all to negotiate a satisfactory deal in the region. So this was really complicated. And, and I think that anyone who doesn't acknowledge the complexity is, and which is we have this problem all the time in Middle East commentaries. People don't acknowledge complexities and don't acknowledge that often there's not a great, there's not an obvious great solution. Right. So let's acknowledge that. But at the same time, there is such a thing as a decision that's uncomplicatedly terrible. You can take a complicated decision and, and I mean, a complicated situation and make a simply dumb decision. I used an analogy on Twitter. It's like, imagine you have a patient with an illness and it's a bad illness and it's a complicated illness. And some doctors have made mistakes that have made the patient worse. Other doctors have come in and corrected some of those mistakes and made the patient better. But after a roller coaster, the patient, though still quite sick, is stable. Mm -hmm. Now there's debate about what to do next. What's the next course of treatment? When in comes somebody, we'll just um, label him Dr. Trump. Okay. 
And Dr. Trump hates establishment medicine, and he thinks they're all idiots. And so he walks up, and he takes a syringe, and he injects the patient with, like, let's just say, pure methamphetamine. (laughs) The the patient um, begins immediate rapid decline. And then when everyone jumps all over Dr. Trump, he goes, why are you mad at me? This was complicated. Yeah. No, that was a simply dumb solution or a simply dumb measure. And and what we saw was the equivalent of the patient getting rapidly more ill as a result of one guy's decision. And rarely have I seen a foreign policy decision have such an immediate negative outcome. You know, I, I remember 14 days ago, like I'm old enough to remember two weeks ago. Okay. And two weeks ago, we had a NATO alliance with Syria uh, with Turkey that was strained but relatively stable. We had a strong alliance with Kurds in Syria. We had ISIS not destroyed, but definitely the caliphate in ruins, and definitely we had the upper hand. And then we had Syria, Russia, and Iran at bay. Fast forward two weeks, our alliance with Turkey is more in greater crisis than it's perhaps ever been. Our alliance with the Kurds is gone They have sprinted to Russia and to Assad. ISIS has received a lifeline. Hundreds of prisoners have been released. Even putting that aside, the pressure that we're able to put on ISIS has been immensely reduced. And Syria and Russia, rather than being at bay, are literally granting guided tours to Russian media of an American base that they overran. Right. A base we held two weeks ago. Yes. That we worked very hard to hold. (laughs) Yes. That now Russia <laughs> and I could go into. on and on. I mean, we had to use Apache helicopters, according to the Wall Street Journal, and F-15s, to hold at bay Turkish allied militia so that we could bomb our own base into oblivion to keep it from falling into Turkish allied hands. I mean, this has been I you know, it it took a lot longer between the signing of the peace accords that ended American involvement in Vietnam and Saigon to fall. Right. It took a lot longer for ISIS to sweep through northern Iraq after American troops withdrew in 2011. It took four days, four days before all of these things happened. And the other thing for all of those MAGA listeners out there who think that Trump's bluster like is is being tough, October 9, he sends Erdogan this bizarre letter and don't be a fool. Right. Let's make a deal. And the reporting indicates that Erdogan literally threw the letter away and then launched his offensive. So the bluster of Trump, he's been figured out. A lot of us have been talking and saying he's been figured out now. Yeah. You know, if you talk to people who are in communication with, say, the Saudis, or you talk to people who understand the dynamics in Iran, or you talk to people who understand the dynamics in Syria and Turkey and Iraq, Almost to a man, they will say, Trump has been figured out. And the way they figured him out is they ignore the tweets, the bluster, the threats, that if you push him, he'll fold. Not only did he fold, I mean, it's, uh, I was listening to a podcast, Jonah's podcast, and um, it was like the guest he had said, it's not, it wasn't like just a fold or he played a bad hand. It's like he took his hand and just gave it to the other side, and the other side told him how to play it. <laughs> right, right. Coming up, David French discusses how he's seen the South change during his lifetime and points out the performative aspect of Southern politicians. Who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them? At the end of the day, I I would much rather go to the national championship and lose than go to any other bowl game. The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Just because I'll dig a ditch from 8 to 5 and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. But I want to pivot to an entire 
different part of the world now. Okay. Because um, you're not just a conservative thought leader. You're not just one of the more notable conservative writers of our time. You are also a Southerner. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were born in Auburn, Alabama. You grew up in Kentucky, I believe. I was born in, uh, to be precise, just for the Alabama listeners, Opelika. You were born in Opelika. My parents okay. were Auburn students. Okay. Yeah. And uh, grew up in Kentucky, went to David Lipscomb mm-hmm. in Tennessee. You now live in Tennessee, uh, despite working for a, a an outlet that is based in right. D.C. How has the South changed in your lifetime? Oh, my goodness. And just to fully establish my Southern street cred... Born in Opelika, then my dad taught at LSU, so I lived in Baton Rouge for a while. Okay, you have covered all the SEC. Then Nashville, then Lexington. So, and then my my kids go to the University of Tennessee. I have like I'm overcome with SEC. So, who's your team? Well, I you know I've spent most of my formative years in Kentucky, which meant that I loved basketball season and football season was a source of unrelenting misery. <laughs> so I I always fell back on Auburn. Okay, yeah, but um, so. It really has been interesting to see the difference in the South. I grew up in, so I grew up in rural Kentucky and Nashville, and what really was there to see the South become the new South. And in my town that I grew up in, and, and for those who question, is Georgetown, Kentucky the South? I think of Lexington and Georgetown as sort of the northernmost southern cities in America, and mm-hmm. Louisville is the southernmost northern city. Okay. They're very different, sort of in the way that Nashville and Memphis are just are very different cities. And my town was like a microcosm. It was, I went there and it was mainly a tobacco farming community. Lots and lots of people were on some form of public assistance or free lunch in my schools. Zero resources. I mean, you you know, zero budgets in these schools. I mean, we were on a shoestring, public schools, uh, you know, from, from uh, second grade when I got there to 12th grade when I graduated. But, you know, I had a great childhood had a great childhood. There were racial tensions. It was a point where races, overt racism was frowned upon, even in, you know, white communities, but everyone knew that there were a lot of racists out there. And we had some racial strife in my high school. So there was a small group of just overtly racist students who would verbally torment black students in the school with racial epithets and threats. And there were isolated fights here and there. And it kind of culminated in a giant brawl and brawl involving, I don't know, 25, 30 people in the halls. And um, this would have been in the... 1987. 1987. We ended up having, you know, armed cops for about a week, just sort of walking through the halls and in the lunchroom. And it was wow. it was ugly. So you there was the obvious racial tensions. But then my senior year... Um, Toyota announced that it was coming and it was going to build an auto plant right smack in Georgetown, Kentucky. So if you go back to Georgetown now, it looks like, you know, upper middle class suburbia with the difference between, say, like a, you know, a more prosperous northern town and a more prosperous southern town is the northern towns don't tend to have a bass boat in every driveway. (laughs) (laughs) Heck of a lot more bass boats. And, And so you just saw this transformation of a, a really sort of much more rural, much more ag- agrarian kind of society and mindset to one that's very busy and commercial. And that's in that that's sort of the whole stereotype of the New South is it's what was the phrase that was used back in the 90s, too busy to hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Atlanta's too busy to hate. And there's you get a lot of that sense of some of the growing areas of the South. Nashville is a fundamentally different town than it was even when I was in college. Charlotte, um, Atlanta, of course. You you can see these these cities in the South that they're just transformed, and then there are other cities that are changing, but also they're not changing in the same pace. And so you can it's almost as if you go back in time a bit when you go to different cities. Mm-hmm. And so it's a the South is a complicated place, um, and. The thing, the narrative I always thought about the South was we're on the right arc, mm-hmm. that we've come from, ugh, it's hard to believe the amount of actual oppression that was visited upon our fellow citizens in the lifetime of lots of Southern residents. I mean, the, the pre-civil rights era South was almost like a, an oppressive sub-country within the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so the progress has been made is remarkable. And 
uh, racial relations, living standards, you name it. But I think that one of the things that we just have to confront is that Southern populism has always had a big race element to it. Always had. Mm -hmm. And it still does. Yeah. In a conversation you had uh, earlier this year with Ezra Klein on Mm -hmm. his podcast, uh, y'all discussed a term, I don't know that you coined it, but a term that you used, which was um, performative wokeness. Yes. I mean, I'm sure we see elements of that in the South because everybody's on Mm -hmm. social media. From my vantage point, it almost seems like in the South, what is encroaching more is kind of a performative conservatism or performative pro-life stance where people run for office saying, these are the things I hold dear, and then don't actually (laughs) implement them. I think there's a performative Southerness. Okay. Okay. So I I don't think there is as much performative pro-lifeness because, my goodness, and the, the... States in the South have passed the most um, bold pro-life legislation. Well, let me restate it, I Mm -hmm. guess. It's sort of the idea of like a Phil Bredesen or Mm -hmm. a uh, John Bell Edwards Mm -hmm. um, or or in Alabama, a Walt Maddox. Like, you know, Democratic politicians who who run on pro-life stances still lose pro-life voters in part because it it is seen that you can only be pro-life if you are a Republican, I guess. Or they only trust you. They only trust you to be pro-life. You have to be a secret pro-choice if you're not. So I've always, so I've been, uh, most of my career, a lawyer in the South. So I'm sort of telling on my own tribe. (laughs) The two kinds of people who are most performatively Southern are trial lawyers and politicians. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, it's almost as if politicians, and you see this, on Democrat and Republican side, but more so on the Republican side since the Democrats, except for, you know, African-American Democrats have been all largely wiped out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like I'm running not as a defender of a particular um, set of policy positions, but as a culture, a defender of a culture. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have the guy, and he might be a doctor, he might be a lawyer, but how he's going to run and he's going to have a pickup truck and he's going to have a gun and he probably is going to have a dog and he's probably going to get a real Southern twang by the end of it. And, and it's almost as like I'm running as a cultural avatar of this particular way of life. Right. And I'm not going to let Washington change me and I'm not going to let Washington change you. And, <laughs> and you know, it's funny. Um, and I'd say trial lawyers because – Trial lawyers are also very similar. I've been in depositions with super smart lawyers from, like, say, the hills of East Kentucky. And we're going back and forth, and and we're arguing. And, and at one point, I got one of the lawyers I was against, just this super successful guy. He's disagreeing with me. And he goes, well, I'm just a country lawyer. <laughs> and I said, save that for the jury. <laughs> because... I know you're not just anything, yeah. Um, but you'll you'll see that sort of performative southernness, and and it's I think what it is. There's sort of a it's like laying down a cultural marker that there's this sort of distinctiveness about the South, and it's marked by manner of speech. It's marked by the kind of clothes that we wear, the kind of vehicles that we drive. And look, I I love it until just this uh, last year. Look, I'm a writer. I'm a opinion columnist and I was my I drove a Toyota Tundra. Yeah. Why do I need a Toyota Tundra? <laughs> I don't need a Toyota Tundra. I'm not I don't need the truck to haul all those words. I mean the main hauling it did was when I loaned it out to people. Right. You know? But hey, yeah. Yeah. Why not? I love it. Well and I'm also in love with and fascinated by Southern culture. But I guess, you know, you talked about the performative Southernness mm-hmm. where everybody you know, it's the sort of cracker barrelification of yeah. the South that everybody has to be the same way. And like when you kind of, when you talk about, or when politicians talk about defending that way of life, it's kind of reductive because it limits the South to only being that way of life. Right. And I've been thinking, so I, I don't know if you've watched any of this Ken Burns country music series. I haven't yet. I want to. So I, I've watched four episodes of it now. And I and I also just did an interview with um, Fawn Weaver, who, who runs um, nearest... Green Distillery, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. and Uncle Nearest Green was the slave who taught Jack Daniel how to uh, to distill. interesting, okay. And so, you know, I was thinking about that, and then in in this country music documentary, you see that, like, the the beginnings of country music, which I think most people would consider one of the most Southern music, or at least most Southern white music genres in the country, is kind of born out of this rub 
of African-American and poor Appalachian white cultures yeah. in the South. And so to me, you know, a lot of the Southern culture we now take for granted it, it has always been kind of transgressive. It, you know, it's the, mm-hmm. uh, it's the drunks who are, yeah. <laughs> who are the oh. honky-tonks. And it's the, uh, I guess, the I thing that I find fascinating about the South is that uh, we have increasingly gone in this direction of, well, everything needs to be kind of the way it was. And the way it was was always chaotic. And well, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people forget because we had this incredible racial divide. Mm-hmm. The South was a place with a tremendous class divide. Mm-hmm. A tremendous class divide. I mean, uh, the, the the sort of the patrician upper upper class plantation culture was very different from sort of the the mass culture right. of. And and the interesting thing is, I think that the part of the South that has mainly survived into the twenty first century is not the patrician right <laughs> at all. Yeah, at, at all. I mean, there you know how many cotillions are there still now? You know, in Alabama, more than you'd think. <laughs> well, yeah, but that, you know, I, I remember bad. there were some in Kentucky, and they're yeah, almost sure. all gone sure. now. And and you you know you don't hear much about them in Nashville. And it's been sort of that bottom up culture of the uh-huh. South that has really endured. Now I don't know if you've found this, but I, I have found this. I have found that some of the most zealous appreciators of Southern culture are relatively new transplants. I think that's probably true because everything's new. And it's new. Yeah. And they love it and and their kids love it. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, when you say Southern culture, you mean sort of the, the stereotypical. Yeah, the stereotypical. They're yeah, going to, yeah. you know, you'll get an accountant from Jersey and give him 18 months and he's got an F-150. Right. And one or two shotguns, yeah. you know. It's like a man assumes the traits of his occupation and culture. They, yeah, right. they want to become Southerner, so they embody what yeah, they Yeah, exactly, exactly. Are. Yeah. You know, once you kind of peel back a little bit of that, I mean, you know, NASCAR starting with uh, moonshine runs and things yeah. like that, you know, it's always kind of born out of out of something chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think the South is heading right now? It's hard for me to imagine in my lifetime uh, the South not retaining its distinctive character in large part because um, we've reached a point where you're. Are you familiar with the term the big sort? Mm-hmm. So this notion that we're kind of we're really sorting much more into like-minded enclaves, and so it's almost as if every place is getting extra. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, if you go to San Francisco, it's extra San Francisco. Sure. If you're in rural and exurban South, it's extra South, and so I, I don't see that trend really reversing itself. Now, I do think that the interesting thing about the South is you have these cities like Austin, like Nashville, like parts of Dallas, Fort Worth, that are very much more almost like enclaves of, they still have the accent and they still have the music, but much more enclaves of, you know, northern urban mindsets uh, nestled in these red states. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there's just a different ethos that's developing in a lot of these very prosperous southern cities. Um, like I joke, if you're going to move to East Nashville, it's almost like mandatory that you're going to have to have a tattoo sleeve. <laughs> uh, it's just a, you know, it's just a different, it's just a, you know, a different, hipper, more hipster place. And sure. so these things are happening. But I think as a general rule, the character of the South is is it's like as if the South is kind of doubling down on itself in a way. Mm-hmm. And even in the sort of hipster places, they love where they are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. There was a thing you mentioned earlier uh, as you were defining what conservatism means to you that I just want to touch on just a little bit. So where do the big tech companies kind of fall in in the future of capitalism in the United States? I mean, where, yeah. where does social media and Amazon and uh, and Google, you know, are they anti-capitalist? Are they pro-capitalist? So I am not a I am not a believer in the big tech panic, the great big tech big tech panic sure. on the right, yeah, or the left. Or the left. There, there's a different kind of big tech panic on the right and on the left. They intersect a little bit, but mm-hmm. they, they're fundamentally different. I think they're different. Each one of them is a different company. We sort of list them all under big tech, right? Mm-hmm. But they're just different companies. So uh, I don't know if you saw Mark Zuckerberg's speech or heard about it yesterday at Georgetown University. That was a speech, a ringing endorsement of free expression and a rejection of additional censorship on the platform. Now, there are elements of the 
of the Facebook platform that I are, are policies that I disagree with and give sort of too much discretion to define hate speech. But it was a ringing endorsement of free expression. Facebook is different from Twitter. Amazon has a different ethos from Apple, and Apple has a different ethos from Google. And and I don't lump them all in the same. And I also don't look if if there are objective reasons to apply apply antitrust law. I'm not the hugest fan of antitrust law, but that's defensible. Mm -hmm. Using antitrust law as a punitive measure, this sort of populist uprising against social media, all of those things, I'm deeply skeptical of those. And I don't know that it's entirely populist. I mean, I I think a lot of people wish they spent less time on Facebook and Twitter, but, and I can only really speak for for myself here, but I also think there's a a, a bit of uh, anger, particularly at Facebook from small town media entities that have been driven out of business by the, uh, by social media. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, there were other things that would have, would have done that in the first place, but I think that that's part of probably why some of those stories catch on. Um, yeah. well, and you know, and it's not like these are, so I think another reason is we live in a, we live, this is just a, uh, a human characteristic. We live with a chronic inability to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so when things make us angry or sad, we will tend to blame other people. One of the things about social media is it sort of puts human nature on blast. Mm-hmm. It, it, you are who you are, and you are who you are publicly. And we haven't adjusted to that. Sure. And, and we're going through, I think, as a, as, a, as sort of as a culture, a learning process. We're going through an upheaval that can be compared, I think, to the Industrial Revolution, learning a new way of living and interacting with each other that was quite different from the old way. And we can't go back. I mean, these are technologies that are not going to be uninvented. And the, and the human desire for connection is not going to go away. We have to figure out how to live like this. And, mm-hmm. and we keep looking at Facebook to solve the problem that some of our friends are really crappy people. Right. Or we want Twitter right. to solve the problem that there are terrible people in media. Or we want, you know, and so we keep looking at these entities that are sort of holding up a giant mirror to our society and saying, fix our society. Yeah. You know, and and I think that's part of what's happening. And, and you know, look, I, I'm a dad of a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and an 11-year-old. And so I have sort of my 20-year-old and 18-year-old kind of came of age as the iPhone was born mm-hmm. and social media was born. And what I, what I saw was first we went into it naive, thinking, oh, cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can look up anything right Yay. now. Yay. Yeah, yeah. This is awesome. And then you're like, oh, wow, look at those downsides. And then you're thinking, oh, okay, this is how you do it. It's sort of a three-phase thing and a lot of people haven't made it to phase three yet right um and and phase three looks different for different families but one thing i know is it's nothing magic about the platform some of the worst drama i've seen from my kids you know greater peer group wasn't on instagram or snapchat or facebook at all it was in google docs mm-hmm. or it was on group me yeah um it was anywhere where people could interact and anywhere where drama could be spread it could be spread well, and you mentioned the, the the big sort, and I mean, in some ways, I, I guess I disagree with that mindset. Mm-hmm. In that, because of social media, you know, I mean, in the nineteen fifties and sixties, if you wanted to read the conservative paper in your town, you could read the conservative paper. If you wanted mm-hmm. to read the liberal paper, you could read the liberal paper. There was a very small chance that you would have ever seen a Black Weekly, right? And so, you know, now it's all going through your feed. A lot of it's disinformation and misinformation, but. You know, you, the the exchange of ideas, which mm-hmm. uh, I imagine fire would have been um, fully beyond. It seems like there's never been a a greater exchange of ideas. It's just that leads to a whole lot more growing pains than. Well, and also, you know, the interesting thing is, so number one, the exchange of ideas is a is a subculture. Okay, let, let's just be let's <laughs> just be okay. honest yeah, about sure. that. Okay. Like most of it is disrupting ideas. Well, or, it's, or it, well most ideas. of it's just social media. Yeah, I mean, most of right. it is just friends and family and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. entertainment and celebrity. Because the, the the politics side of social media is a lot smaller than we tend. To, those of us who are obsessed with but, politics, yeah. politics is a subculture. Sure. Now the interesting thing is, the subculture that is most interested in politics is a disproportionately white, disproportionately upper middle class, 
and disproportionately wrong <laughs> about their fellow citizens, yeah. in part because we don't know how to consume media anymore. We will fill our feed with either things that reinforce our priors or with things that reinforce our priors in both directions. So mm-hmm. good media that we like, and then ha-ha, look at those idiots, right. media that we don't like. Right. So I don't know if you saw this uh, more in common Hidden Tribe survey from the More in Common Project, and it was mm-hmm. released a couple months ago. And what they found was Americans were very wrong in describing their political opponents. They consistently oh, yeah. described them as more extreme than they were. Mm-hmm. And the people who are the most wrong were the people who consume the most media, and the people who are least wrong were the people who consume the least media. And so on the one hand, those who consume the most media were on the power curve of like civic knowledge, they know how a bill com- becomes a law. They know mm-hmm. how to, you know, all of that stuff. They know so- who's on the Supreme Court. But they were on the power curve of ignorance about their peers on the other side. The people who consume the least of the political media, they gained their knowledge about people from the other side from these things called friendships. And so they were more accurate. Yeah. It was really fascinating. And I do think that this is, again, one of those things where people are trying to work this out and not to bring it full circle. But one of the things that we want to be in the dispatch is we want to be the kind of place where somebody can trust and say, here's what the real story is. Here's some ways to think about this real story. And we're, and we're going to you know, shoot straight all the time so that we're not going to contribute to this phenomenon called nut picking. Right. Where you take somebody, some extreme weirdo on the other side and elevate them and make them famous and emblematic of the other side. We want to, somebody sent me a, a direct message when I'd made the announcement and had read our mission statement and said, that sounds great because I just need somebody to keep me sane. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I think that'd be a great one-line mission statement for us. We'll keep you sane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Uh, where can people find it? Well, it's thedispatch.com. Okay. Uh, and uh, so we're going to have podcasts. We're going to have newsletters. We're going to have web content. We'll have many forms of content. And right now you can join for free. Or if you want to become a lifetime member, you can do that. Okay. Your option. And, but then later on we'll be subscription-based. So it'll be behind the paywall? Most of it, not all of it. Sure. Not all of it. Well, good journalism is worth paying for, so uh, check out the the dispatch. (laughs) Thank you a lot, David. Thank you. And that's all, folks. Thank you again to David French for the conversation and for welcoming me into your home. You can find him on Twitter at at David A. French and subscribe to The Dispatch at thedispatch.com. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. Our show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records. It was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. Hey, if you like our show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Hound them until they listen to it. Do not relent. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Go to al.com slash reckon to sign up for our newsletter and to stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and around the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.